Christ Church, New Malden. Sunday the 14th of January 2024, 11 o'clock service. Ruth Henson speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God. Ruth. Well, as Tim mentioned, we're in the second week of our sermon series entitled Outsiders Come to God, having kicked off with Rahab last week. This week, our subject is Ruth. When I receive the preaching programme from Stephen, I usually try to read between the lines to see if there's some reason why he selected me for a particular talk in the series. But I didn't have to think too long or hard as to why I was the one chosen to speak on my namesake, Ruth. Perhaps if we had a member of the congregation called Rahab, she would have been speaking last week instead of Stephen. But us Ruths, are fewer and farther between these days. Whereas Ruth was in the top three of names given to girls in the UK in the 1890s and remained in the top 10 until the 1920s, it slipped out of the top 100 around the millennium. And in the latest available data from 2021, it ranks 567th on the list. Sad times. This graph does make it look like it's beginning to trend upwards again, though, so we'll have to wait and see. My mum and dad, unsurprisingly, chose the name for me because of the Bible character we are studying today. And I've always loved her story and been proud to share my name with her. So I was certainly happy to be allotted this talk in the series. The Book of Ruth is often likened to a short story or novella, nestling in the middle of the Old Testament. It is only 85 verses long, spread across four chapters, so it was tempting to have the whole book read as our readings, but I settled for the beginning and end instead, and we'll take a quick whiz through the rest of the story in a minute. At times, the tale has been reduced to being considered as a Mills and Boone-style romance, or a nice story for a children's Bible storybook. But I hope by the end of this talk, however familiar or unfamiliar you are with Ruth's story, you will agree with me that she has a whole lot more to teach us than that you should be nice to your mother-in-law, or isn't it nice that God included a foreign woman or two in Jesus's family tree? So let's take that whiz through the story especially for those unfamiliar with it or needing memories refreshed. And I'll also try to add a bit of context as we go along. The Book of Ruth takes place in about 1200 BC, in the last days of the judges, before the kings ruled. This was a time of lawlessness and idolatry, when God's people, the Israelites, repeatedly turned their backs on him and faced the consequences of their choices and actions. As we read in the last verse of the book of Judges, the preceding book of the Old Testament, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And then in the very next verse, the first verse of Ruth chapter 1, in the days, of the ju- in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
In this context of abandoning of God and his ways, combined with desperate hunger, we meet a family from Bethlehem. That town is famous and familiar to our ears because of its place in the Christmas story, but it was then a small and insignificant place of just a few hundred people. If you were at the service on Christmas Day, you might remember Tim telling us that Bethlehem means house of bread. But that doesn't spare it from the famine that is taking place. So the family at the centre of our story are led to drastic action. Elimelech, the father of the family, makes a drastic decision to up sticks from Bethlehem and move to Moab. Seeking food for your family might sound like the responsible and sensible thing for a parent to do. But there is a lot of history between the Israelites and Moabites, which makes this a decision dishonouring of God. The Moabites were descended from Lot's inappropriate relationship with his elder daughter, which you can read about in Genesis 19. That already got them labelled as incestuous, based on their origins, but their subsequent actions did nothing to improve that opinion, adding pagan and idolatrous to the list, as you can read about in Numbers chapter 25. Deuteronomy 23 makes a very clear warning about the dangers of consorting with the Moabites. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Naharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. Elimelech's name means, my God is king, but his choices and actions show that he was actually following his own course as to what was best for his family. His wife's name is Naomi, which means sweet or pleasant, a fact she finds ironic as the story goes on. And their sons are called Marlon and Killian, which mean sickness and destruction, respectively, which are unfortunately far more appropriate. Elimelech dies after they arrive in Moab, leaving Naomi a widow with two sons. Despite the command not to associate with Moabites, Marlon and Killian take wives from amongst the Moabite women, and the family continues to live in Moab for about 10 years. Tragedy then strikes again as both of Naomi's sons die, leaving the woman and her two Moabite daughters-in-law as a trio of widows. Naomi hears word that there is food again now in the land of Judah, so decides to return to Bethlehem, the house of bread, where there is once more food to be found. She encourages her daughters-in-law to return to their family homes, thanking them for their kindness to both her and their husbands. 
these two women do not seem to match up to the description we've read of the incestuous, pagan, idolatrous Moabites. And their first reaction is to pledge their allegiance to Naomi. But she points out how bleak a future they would face as she has no hope of producing further sons for them to marry. One of the daughters-in-law, called Orpah, is persuaded to return home. Her name means back of the head or neck, which seems appropriate as this is what she turned to Naomi as she set off home to her family. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, the eponymous heroine of the book and our subject today, clings to Naomi and refuses to leave her side. In her famous speech, where she determinedly dedicates herself to Naomi, she states, Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me. We will never know the exact reason for Ruth's commitment, whether it was based on her close bond with her mother-in-law, a faith in God she had developed from her 10 years living with a Jewish family, or just down to her caring and dedicated nature. Perhaps it was a combination of all those things but we know that Naomi could not say no to her. So in the end, the two widows traveled together. Having looked at the meaning of everyone else's names, we should quickly pause to consider the meaning of Ruth. There are links with the Jewish word for friendship, but the overriding meaning is kind and compassionate, which the Ruth of our story clearly lives up to. The word Ruth actually used to be in usage as a word for loving kindness and compassion, but fell out of parlance long ago. But the reminder we have of that word is in the adjective ruthless, the complete opposite of the characteristics shown by Ruth. Back to the story. And Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem. You can imagine the stir this causes in a small town after 10 plus years away. Naomi quickly fills the women in on the downturn in her fortunes, advising them to call her Mara, meaning bitter, instead of Naomi, meaning sweet and pleasant, because she went away full but has returned empty. The last verse of chapter 1 does offer a glimmer of hope though, because their return to Bethlehem, the house of bread, coincides with the start of the barley harvest. At this point, the writer gives us a quick heads up that Naomi has an in-law called Boaz, which is going to be important information in the coming verses. And if the name Boaz sounds familiar, it's because he was mentioned last week as the son of Rahab, the outsider who we considered then. Ruth then asked Naomi for permission to go and glean in the fields, 
and by God's provision and guidance, she ends up in the fields of this relative, Boaz. But what is gleaning? This basically boils down to God's forerunner of social welfare, instructing landowners to leave the outer edges of their fields unharvested and not to pick up any crops that get dropped during the harvesting process so that those in need can gather these leftovers for themselves. Leviticus 23 verse 22 contains this decree. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Hmm, the poor and the foreigner. Sounds like the outsiders we're considering in this series, and certainly a fitting description of Naomi and Ruth. In another God incidence of perfect timing, Boaz arrives just then, spots Ruth hard at work gleaning, and asks his overseer who she is. Learning of her connection to Naomi, he quickly addresses her, telling her to remain in the safety of his fields, where he has told his workers not to lay a hand on her, as gleaning could be dangerous work. He offers her water to drink whenever she needs it, and at lunchtime gives her bread to eat. When she asks why he is being so kind to her, he tells her that he has heard of her kindness to Naomi and feels she should be richly rewarded for what she has done. He even instructs his workers to drop extra stalks for her to gather so that she ends up taking back to Naomi about 13 kilograms of threshed barley. Naomi can't believe her eyes when she sees how much Ruth has gathered, but it all makes sense when she learns that Ruth happened to end up in the fields of Boaz. She explains to Ruth that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, which is another provision of God which will require explanation. In Leviticus 25 verse 25 we read, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. This concept extends to include paying off debts, rescuing people from poverty, and marrying those who are widowed and childless to continue the family line for their deceased relative. These actions would provide much needed hope and security for those in desperate straits who had no means to help themselves. Hearing that Boaz has the potential to play this role for Naomi and Ruth can allow our hope for their bleak situation to increase. Ruth continues to glean in Boaz's fields, but the harvest is drawing to a close, so Naomi decides on a course of action to secure their futures. She advises Ruth to look her best, then head to the threshing floor, where Boaz will be sleeping after celebrating the harvest. She should lie at his feet and await further instructions. Ruth does not question this strange instruction, so Boaz awakes in the middle of the night to find Ruth lying at his feet. 
she asks him to spread his garment over her as her kinsman redeemer, which is basically a proposal of marriage. Despite this being not what was expected of a woman, least of all a foreign, marginalised widow, Boaz promises to do all he can to fulfil this request. As a quick side note, this chaste encounter between Boaz and Ruth is in stark contrast to those their families originate from. As I already mentioned, Moabites were descended from an incestuous encounter between a drunk Lot and his daughter, and Boaz was descended from Perez, the son of Joseph's brother Judah, via an illicit affair with his daughter-in-law Tamar. How easily Boaz could have taken advantage of Ruth on the threshing floor, but rather he esteemed her honour due to her dedication to Naomi and treated her with respect. But there is a potential spanner in the works. Boaz knows of a closer kinsman redeemer who has first dibs on marrying Ruth and redeeming the land of Elimelech. Boaz sends Ruth back to Naomi with six measures of barley and promises to seek out this closer relative to sort things out. The final chapter sees Boaz play a smart hand at the town gate, where he meets his rival kinsman. He first mentions the land of Elimelech, which is available to be redeemed. The man is interested in that option, but Boaz sideswipes him with the mention of the need to also marry and redeem the Moabite widow Ruth. The fellow kinsman has no interest in that, fearing the consequences for his own estate. So he waives all interest and smooths the way for Boaz to marry Ruth. Boaz and Ruth are married and God enables Ruth who remained childless during her marriage to Marlon, to conceive and give birth to a son called Obed, who was the grandfather of King David and a member of the genealogy of Jesus. Naomi's helpless, hopeless situation has been transformed thanks to the daughter-in-law who the women of Bethlehem recognise as worth more than seven sons, seven being the Hebrew number of completeness. And that's the story. And it is a lovely one, isn't it? You can see why people think of it as a romantic novella or a lovely children's tale. But there's a lot more to it than that. So let's think what we can take away from the story of Ruth the Moabite, apart from a fuzzy feeling. Firstly, it was an awful situation. Let's take a minute to reflect on just how awful the situation was. We can only imagine how broken Naomi was by her journey to bitterness. All the hope of a fresh start somewhere new, however ill-advised that was, destroyed by the death of her husband and sons. And for Ruth, well she took being an outsider to the extreme. On the outsider checklist of the day, she could check off pagan, foreigner, enemy Moabite, Gentile, woman, widow, and given her 10 years of childless marriage, potentially barren. 
That's a whole heap of outsider in 1200 BC terms. Then there's the danger she puts herself in, going to the fields to glean when the hired workers apparently saw this as an open invitation for unwelcome advances. The women's situation was fraught with danger and despair. But happily, there was also abundant love. Such bleak and desperate situations can only be redeemed and transformed by love. God's love and those following his example and call. God's love lays down the pattern for kindness, compassion and care in the rules of gleaning and the role of the kinsman redeemer. God's love offers hope, forgiveness, mercy and grace to Naomi, even after she and her family rejected God and sought worldly answers in a prohibited land. God's love both inspires and welcomes an outsider, in fact, the outsider of outsiders in human terms, by drawing Ruth to him and using her wonderful kindness and compassion for his redeeming purposes. And Ruth and Boaz exemplify the transformative power of love to redeem hopeless and desperate situations when you live out God's pattern of sacrificial love in your daily lives. And this led to amazing hope. From despair and bitterness, Ruth and Naomi are given hope, security and a future. But the story of Ruth does exactly the same for us. In fact, the story of Ruth is a microcosm of the whole Bible. The idea that God brings outsiders in is not unique to this story, or even these few stories we are covering in this sermon series. No, it's the same story the Bible tells again and again and again. That God takes in strangers, aliens, foreigners, outsiders, those who don't belong, and brings them into his family under his protection. The story of Ruth should remind us that we also are outsiders. Like Naomi and Elimelech, we reject God's plans and purposes and follow our own ways instead, thinking we know best. But it also points us to our amazing hope, the greater hope of an even better Boaz, our true kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Remember, the whole point of the kinsman redeemer was to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. <clears throat> Jesus truly was our kin, even taking on frail flesh and dwelling among us. But he could also offer us redemption, being obedient to all God had commanded. He even became an outsider in our place, scorned and rejected, hanging on the cross, bearing the weight of our sinfulness. The story of the gospel is this. Jesus became an outsider like us, so we could become a child of God like him. 
The response of Ruth and Boaz to the loving kindness of God is to show as much of the same as they can to those they encounter. They both go way above and beyond what is required by the law and expected in human terms. What about us? Who are the outsiders God is placing on our hearts or radars to love and welcome? <clears throat> the story of Ruth is read by Jews at their harvest festival, Shavuot, and it was this festival which became the Christian celebration of Pentecost, the birthday of the church, when the apostles were enabled to speak in diverse languages to show that the barriers to Gentiles joining God's people had been removed and that the church's call was to welcome everyone and make being and doing church accessible to all. How are we here at Christchurch New Malden following that calling and sharing God's abundant love and amazing hope with those around us, however awful their situations are? So, Ruth. It's a pretty cool name, worthy of higher than 567th on the list. And it's a pretty cool story too. Not just a romantic story, or one for children, but rather a story of transforming love for all people. Amen. <clears throat>